Barnabas. Um, that's okay, I'm going to move over here because just in the unlikely event I get really excited and start jumping around. I don't want to cause Brooke and Daniel an injury over there. <clears throat> no, that's all right, go. Well, on a regular basis, the arid regions of the world are subject to locust plagues. So in East Africa, the Middle East, Southwest Asia, um, the onset of rains after a long dry period can trigger an explosive change in the reproduction of certain grasshopper species. Um, so eggs that have lain dormant in the soil for months or years uh, will begin to hatch in numbers so large that witnesses have described the event as though the ground was starting to boil. Um, and all these nymphs emerge, these flightless, uh, flightless small grasshoppers that then go through several molting stages, busily consuming vegetation as they go, of course, um, until they become proper winged locusts. And then they can, they can form in congregations so large as to uh, block out the sun like clouds or, or blanket the entire earth like snow. And they're not particularly fussy eaters. They'll, they'll eat anything green. So they will strip plants bare. They will absolutely decimate and destroy crops. It's estimated that a one square kilometre swarm of locusts contains about 40 million insects and can consume as much food in a day as 35,000 people. So a locust plague is not simply a bit of an irritation. It's an ecological disaster. If you live in Australia, in the wheat belt, a locust plague is an economic disaster. But if you live in an economy where people are highly dependent upon local food production, then a locust plague is um, a humanitarian disaster. Uh, it, it brings poverty, it brings starvation, and in its wake comes disease and death. And that's the situation that the people of Judah faced in the lifetime of the prophet Joel. Now, we don't know anything about Joel, and scholars are left guessing as to when he actually lived. Uh, our best guess is that he ministered in uh, the population of Judah somewhere during the period after the return from Babylonian exile. So that's late in their history, somewhere around the middle or the late 6th century. And at this point in their history, Judah is faced with this absolutely devastating locust plague. Uh, Eugene Peterson uh, describes the, the, the nature of this plague very poetically uh, in the message, in his translation of verse 4. He says, What the chewing locust left, the gobbling locust ate. What the gobbling locust left, the munching locust ate. What the munching locust left, the chomping locust ate. Now, I, I wish I had the presence of mind when we had teenage boys to stick that on our refrigerator uh, because it, it's a pretty good description of what goes on in our house. Um, and or it still happens, really, because uh, gobbling locust and munching locust still live with us. Um, as amusing as Eugene Peterson makes it sound, this, nonetheless, was a full-blown disaster for the people of Judah. And from verse 5 onwards... 
the whole disaster is laid out before us, beginning with the destruction of what is obviously a luxury item, the, 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 the year's new vintage of wine, and going on through the devastation of the staple cereal crops, through the fruit crops, through the olive harvest, to the point where the pastures are devastated, so the livestock have nothing to eat, and even the wild grasslands are consumed, so that the wildlife is now starving. And then to top it off at the end of chapter one, you might notice there's a drought. There is no food and there is no water. Now, Joel is a prophet of the Lord, remember, so he's not simply recording an ecological, economic and humanitarian disaster. He is interpreting what's before him. We've uh, just done a series on Revelation and, and there we learned about the nature of apocalyptic literature. Now, Joel is not actually apocalyptic literature, although the book of Revelation draws heavily on Joel's imagery. But like apocalyptic literature, Joel the prophet is, is lifting the cover uh, on the seen events happening in Judah to tell us what the unseen significance of those events are. So Joel looks at the locust plague and he sees an army. Now, again, scholars debate, is, is Joel describing the invasion of a foreign nation as a locust plague, like the Midianites are described in the book of uh, Judges? Or is he actually describing a locust plague, a literal locust plague, as like an invading army? Well, I I'm convinced of that latter option. He's describing a literal locust plague as being like an invading army. This is an entological army, an insect invasion, a, a surreal locust landing force out of some kind of horror movie. So you have lines of mindless grasshoppers advancing like troops. You've got this bizarre winged cavalry crossing the landscape, these zombie-like foot soldiers climbing the walls and clambering into people's houses. It's no human army, but it is God's army. Joel looks at the locust plague and he sees a God-ordained, God-led army sent to devastate the land. So in verse 11 of chapter 2, he describes it this way, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number and mighty is the army that obeys his command. Well, right here, Joel's tapping into a really important biblical theme, that of God as the divine warrior. It's, it's a theme as least as old as the Exodus from Egypt, where famously, um, after Israel has been rescued from Egypt and brought through the sea where God uh, destroys the army of, of Pharaoh, Moses sings this song that begins this way. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defence. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. When God shows up at the head of an army, this event comes to be known, especially in the minor prophets like Joel, as the day of the Lord. So in verse 11, again, of chapter 2, he says then, Great is the day of the Lord, and greatly to be feared. 
Who can endure it? To paraphrase one Old Testament scholar, the day of the Lord is that moment, that event in time of God's direct and unmistakable engagement in human affairs to assert his authority in the world. An event in time, God's uh, direct engagement in human affairs to assert his authority. And it's called a day because in, in part because only the most powerful sovereign could prosecute a military campaign and bring it to a successful conclusion in the period of one day. And that, by the way, is probably the significance of a day in the creation narrative. Because each day represents God's decisive act in some different theatre of creation to do exactly that, to assert his sovereign authority over the dark, watery chaos and bring it under his rule. And so in the prophets, the day of the Lord is usually signified by, by great cosmic upheaval, by these creation-disturbing events, the darkening of the sun and moon, the fall of the stars, the shaking of the earth, the trembling of the heavens. And again, we find that imagery most vividly in the book of Exodus, where God manifests himself towards his new... Uh, before his newly rescued people, on the mountain uh, with thunder and lightning, with thick cloud and trumpet blast, with smoke and the trembling of the very ground they're standing on. So the day of the Lord is the coming of the king. He's come to bring order to the chaos at work in creation. He's come to bring a rule of righteousness and justice. He's come to renew and to save. So the day of the Lord is ultimately good news for God's people, for all of those who put their trust in him and wait on him. Although that doesn't mean the day of the Lord is comfortable for God's people. The presence of the king is always awe-inspiring and disturbing before it's ever going to be reassuring. And God is not afraid to allow his people to suffer in the process of saving and renewing them. But his coming also means justice being done upon his enemies, upon all who refuse that rule. And so the day of the Lord is terribly bad news for such people. And on the day of the Lord, their trust in false gods, their trust in human power and achievement is shown up as being thoroughly inadequate to create conditions of renewal, salvation, and justice that human beings are looking for. What they are trusting in is burned up like fire. So Joel looks at this locust plague and he sees the day of the Lord. And we should remember that prophets like Joel are not simply seeing the future or only seeing the future. They're speaking God's word into the present situation. And usually they portray that situation against the background of God's ultimate work in space and time. So this local day of the Lord locust plague at a point in Judah's history is being cast against the background of an ultimate day of the Lord. So Joel's vision has the end of all things in view, although we mustn't mistake it for a view of the end of all things. 
He has the end of all things in view, but he's not giving us a view of the end. Because his aim as a prophet is not to speculate about what's coming or simply give us information. It is to call people to repentance. And if you manage to follow that great long reading we had, you might have noticed that the very people he calls to attention at the start of chapter 1, he then calls to prayer halfway through chapter 2. Declare a holy fast, Joel says in verse 14. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the, ha- in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. God's people, suffering because of this God-led locust army, are being called to return to him. That's the point. Well, we should say two things about this locust plague, about the day of the Lord. The first will be what it tells us about God's situation in time and space. And then the second will be what it tells us about our own situation and our own response to disaster. So first, what does Joel tell us today about God's relationship to events in time and space? Now, we we mustn't dismiss Joel as merely being a poet. That is, he looks at this locust plague and then he allegorizes it. He he sees something that is simply and only a locust plague after all, an an event in the natural cycle of things, which he then uses to make some kind of object lesson or moral lesson for us. The Old Testament is consistently clear. Things happening in the world of human affairs and in the so-called world of nature, I'll stop using quotation marks in a while because my fingers will get tired, things happening in the so-called natural world are not events separate from God's sphere of influence. Things happening in the natural world are not events separate from God's sphere of influence. They are always things entirely within the circle of God's sphere of influence. Even when we can readily explain them according to the laws of physics or biology or even human behaviour. Because the Bible, like the cultures all around it and like cultures from millennia before and millennia afterwards, presupposed there was an intimate connection between the working of God or of the gods and the observable working events in this world. But we're different. Our thinking has been highly coloured by the assumptions of science. One of which is the idea that only what human observers can see is real. And by see, I mean all the various ways that science equips itself to make observations. So all those different scopes we have, from telescopes to microscopes, all those different instruments that extend our line of sight from the from spectrometers to seismographs, all of those things are simply ways of seeing. And we moderns have come to define anything and everything that we can't observe through an instrument as not real. If we can't see it, we say it doesn't exist. And so in this scheme, what can be directly observed and studied scientifically is called nature. Nature is the real thing happening in any event that that we come across. Anything outside of that scheme, we label supernatural, by which we mean 
that fictional realm uh, of human imagination. And that includes things like ghosts and vampires and Santa Claus. I didn't spoil that for anyone, did I? Santa Claus. And of course, God. But it's really important for us to know that the statement, only what human observers can see is real, is not itself a scientific statement. It, it can't be proved nor disproved. It's, um, it's in fact a philosophical statement and a logically flawed philosophical statement at that. Now the relevance of all of this is that we modern Christians have by and large bought into this view of reality. We are of course the people who believe in supernatural things, especially God, but we're still thinking in terms of this division between nature and the supernatural, between the real world of observable events and this shadowy, ill-defined world of God's activity as though they were two different things. And we need to be very cautious about this. We need to be very cautious about viewing nature as some mechanism that God has set running as if it were a machine capable of operating under its own steam without his continued presence and input. And worse still, we need to be very careful about any theology of nature that sees God's working in human affairs or in the natural world as necessarily being an interruption of the proper laws of nature or somehow secondary to the way things really work. Because this leads us to a thoroughly inadequate and non-biblical view of reality. You know, the main theological point of the creation narrative is that Israel's God and Israel's God alone has complete sovereignty over every realm. He rules both the heavens and the earth. And God, the creator, is not an absentee landlord. He's the constantly present sustainer of everything he's made. The Apostle Paul says that through him, all things live and move and have their being. There is no such thing as nature and the supernatural. There is only the realm of God's activity. And that's why Jesus teaches us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's also important to see that God has power to save people precisely because he has power over all creation. Creation and salvation in the Bible are not two different activities of God, but two intertwined works. So when God saves Israel from Egypt, he does it through a series of so-called nature miracles, creation events, or really uncreation events, turning uh, the waters into blood, sending diseases and hailstorms, sending a plague of grasshoppers, splitting the sea and then drowning Pharaoh's army. All of them demonstrate that the Lord alone has sovereignty over the cosmos. And likewise, in the prophets and in the book of Revelation, the day of the Lord is depicted with these great upheavals in creation. These, these undoings and uncreatings in the visible realm. Because the significance of this event is that God the King 
is present. He is at work to save, and that means ultimately to bring his creation to its settled completion. And that's why when Jesus comes, announcing the kingdom of God has arrived, he then goes on in a ministry that sees him performing great miracles in the natural world, calming the sea, healing the sick, feeding 5,000, raising the dead. So let me pull this into focus. From our point of view, a, a locust plague is understandable as, as a fully explainable product of climatic events and grasshopper life cycles, nature. From Joel's point of view, the locust plague is explainable as the product of God's action in the world. And he's not contradicting what science has to say about climate or, or grasshoppers, but he's placing the locust plague into the context of God's work. Not as some external alien force invading the world and disturbing nature, but as the regular work of a king exercising his authority in his realm without which we wouldn't even exist. So as a quick aside then, does that mean that natural disasters are all directly the result of God's activity? Well, no, it's more complex than that. But that very question, the very idea that we would go and look behind a natural event to find a supernatural explanation is part of this pagan idea that we, we can split reality into nature and the supernatural. We make gross mistakes in that process. Because the uncomfortable truth is the Bible doesn't explain the complexity of disaster and suffering in the world. It is mostly silent about the why of evil, about why does God allow suffering. That's a complex question, usually left unanswered by the scriptures. But at every turn, the Bible does insist upon two things. The first is the absolute authority of God the King. He is all-powerful. And the second is the absolute goodness of the King. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And so what we need to learn as God's people is that nothing in life happens apart from God's kingly authority and God's loving goodness. We don't inhabit a box governed by impersonal laws into which God may or may not occasionally intervene miraculously. There are no laws of nature, really. There is only the superintending presence of God who creates and saves, who sustains and governs. And we need to take that more seriously than I think we do. Because without that, we start to see the world as the place where we are at work and God is merely some kind of instrument we use to get things done. So we start, if we start to think of prayer and evangelism, worship, preaching, all the things that we do as a community as somehow separate events to our work, our relationships, to, to raising children, balancing budgets, building bridges, if we think they're two different categories of things, we are seriously astray. And worse still, we've become pagans who think that we are magically summoning God up to do something rather than seeing ourselves as children invited to participate in the work that God the Father is already doing.
and so without the right view, we not only become manipulators of God, we become manipulators of one another. And I would put it to you, the root of much disappointment that we have with both God and with our experience of church lies firstly in our frustration that God isn't getting with our program and doing things the way we think he ought to do. And on the other hand, our fury with our neighbours who also won't dance to our tune and get in line with our program. Well, Joel's inviting us to get into step with what God is doing in the world. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. And that brings me now to our second point. What then does our text tell us about our situation as people faced with events, even disasters, in in time and space? You know, Joel confronted the people of Judah with a very real disaster, a humanitarian disaster that was both devastating and inexplicable. What are we to do? Well, he calls the people of Judah to do something that apparently they hadn't even thought of themselves. In the first instance, he calls on the people to mourn. That's the right response to bad things. Wail, you drinkers of wine. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth. Despair, you farmer. Wail, you vine grower. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. What did Jesus say? Blessed are all you who mourn, for you will be comforted. You know, rightly so, the people of Judah should be distressed. But their distress is meant to turn into a cry to the Lord. It is meant to become prayer. Most of you have probably experienced that scene uh, of a child in distress. You know, fallen over, skinned their knee, hurt themselves. Um, But you've noticed that occasion where that small child that's just hurt themselves gets up, doesn't immediately break into tears. They go looking for mum or dad. And then once they've located mum and dad, then they start wailing, start crying out in distress. They, they want to make sure their distress signal's been directed in the right direction. Well, the purpose of human distress is to help us locate our creator and saviour. And the problem is sort of exactly that. Not that God has become absent and run away, but that we have wandered off. So what is the right distress signal? And here again, the prophet Joel, I think, speaks quite profoundly. He never canvasses the question, why? Why us? Why now? Why a locust plague, of all things? I mean, his call to return to the Lord implies that God's people in Judah have been unfaithful in some way, that they have abandoned God. But unlike most of the other prophets who, who, who specify Israel's sin and then very often build a logical connection between the sin and the suffering or the sin and the judgment, Joel doesn't do that. Why is not the primary question Joel unpacks for us? Not that we should shy away from asking why in the face of disaster. Uh, The Bible gives us plenty of examples of that. But Joel's framing a different question. And the question is, where is God? So verse 17 of chapter 2, it begins with the charge that the enemies of Israel might bring. Why should the enemies of Israel say among the peoples, where is their God? The disaster unfolding in the land of Judah doesn't prompt a search for a mechanism 
to explain what has happened and therefore what can be done about it, which is what a why question is after in the end, which is what a scientific mind is looking for. What's prompted is a searching out of God's presence, of God's person, a crying out that seeks the Lord to say, I am here. And spoiler alert, that's where Joel is going to take us to at the end of his book. God's assurance that he is unfailingly, enduringly with his people has never been absent. Well, we shall conclude with another day of the Lord, a day of darkness and earthquake and disaster as Matthew records it in his gospel, where from the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I admit, Jesus is asking a why question, but in fact, he's utilising words from Psalm 22, which in fact is not framing a why question at all. If, if you take the time to go home and meditate on that psalm, you'll find it's really asking a where is God question. Because the psalmist doesn't ever ask God for an explanation of his suffering, but is looking for God's saving attention and personal presence. And Jesus knows this psalm, and he knows where it concludes. It concludes with the psalmist's certainty of God's answer, even if there's not an answer right now. It concludes with the certainty of God's rescue, even if the current situation looks impossible or fatal, and it concludes with the psalmist's certainty of God's life-giving presence, even if this right now feels like God's abandonment. And so I think we'll find the cross of Christ doesn't give us a settled why answer to explain or rationalise evil in any way. But it does speak to the question, where is God? Our confidence as Christians is not built on an intellectual capacity to explain things. It's built on the certainty of God's presence with us. And God's answer to evil, visible in, in nature, whether that be, be the, the, the biological, physical world or the human world, God's answer to evil is not to give us an explanation, but to give us a revelation, a knowledge, not of the facts of the case, but of the person who governs all things and brings them to their right and fitting end. And God's response to evil and suffering, to disaster and calamity, is that he himself enters that world in the incarnation of Jesus. He himself goes into the evil and incomprehensible situation of the cross and makes his presence known and available to us. Not for nothing does the Gospel of John talk about the cross as the place of God's glory, the place where we most clearly see and know him, the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God. The Lord be with us all.